Alive, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is March 16th, 2012, and it's a Friday. Episode 860, and since it's Friday, 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 you know what that means. It's time for your calls that you made in the last week or two to 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK, because we encourage you to think for yourselves here at the Survival Podcast. Uh, when you do call that number, you get about two minutes to leave me your question or comment. I get about, I would say, 40 to 50 a week. It's not that big a number. And I generally get on about 10 to 12 a week, so that means about one in six get on. So that's not that bad of odds. Better odds than the email shows, so you might want to consider calling in with your question or comment. Do it from a quiet location. Do it from a good connection on your cell phone or a landline or a good connection on Skype. Uh, know what you're going to say before you say it. It'll help your call go better. And please try not to call me from the back of a motorcycle or while operating heavy equipment like we or uh, like a bulldozer or even light equipment like a weed eater that makes a bunch of noise. Some of you seem to do that sometimes. I think it's just a joke. Some of you may be, well, I don't know, maybe you need a little help there. So, yeah, it won't work. If somebody's running a weed eater or a leaf blower in the background when you call me, your call probably will not get on the air. All right. Before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week for about an hour a day. Um, sponsor the day number one today, MERSradio.com, M-U-R-S hyphen radio.com. MERS Radio is, uh, is kind of a, an alternative to like the family radio uh, frequency stuff, the stuff you buy on the, off the shelves in sporting goods stores and the like. Uh, not a real far range. Range is about a mile to two miles, depending on the terrain and things like that. Uh, but a good secondary means of communication inside your community or within your family if you have a large homestead or something like that. The really great thing is the way you can combine security and secondary communications with motion detectors that will let you know something like the dog's trying to get out, the raccoon's trying to get in the chicken pen, or there's a two-legged rat on the front porch. All things you might like to know, you will have an alert sent across your comm system to tell you something's going on in what sector that something's going on in. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. You know, Safe Castle has been uh, with us for a long time. In fact, so long I called them the original sponsor. They were the first company to actually step up and say, we want to formally sponsor the show. We want to write you a check. We want to become part of your community at a higher level. They've been here three years. I have no reason to believe they're going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, when their contract came up for renewal, there was none of this three-month, six-month thing. It was just, hey, we want to be around for another year. Uh, they paid for another year in full. Uh, stuff like that with all our sponsors, folks. It just doesn't happen in podcasting. It just doesn't. Uh, but it does here because you guys are an awesome audience and an awesome community, and you support the sponsors, and they support you back. Now, Safe Castle has everything you can think of for your prepping needs, long-term storage food, solar uh, photovoltaics, uh, tactical stuff. You name it, they've got it. Really great great pricing and service on the long-term storable food. And at their sister site, you can link to from prepared.pro, which is their website. Safe Castle Roll is at prepared.pro. Uh, you can find some of the best hardened shelters built anywhere in the world. So if you're looking for a hardened shelter to deal with things like the storms, and we're going to hear about what happened to one family, uh, actually how one family had stuff happen around them during the recent storms. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really dig this doomsday bunker show very much. I think it's just a little bit sensationalist. Um, but there is real. There's a real case to be made for a good solid storm shelter. 
Uh, and uh, you could do worse than to get yours from Safe Castle Roll. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content only available to members. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks. Uh, you get some videos that aren't available anywhere else. And you'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service. Please email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com before you join. Tell me who you are and what you did or who you are and what you're doing. And I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service to our country. With that, uh, I'm ready to get into the main topic. Before I take your calls, though, I have uh, two big updates. One, the update on what happened with Glenn Beck TV. It was phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal uh, being on Glenn Beck's show. And I know that I've said some things that where I had big disagreements. Not really anything against Glenn personally, but where I had some pretty big disagreements. I agree with many of you, the way that he handled the Deborah Medina thing. I think he was misinformed and didn't take the time to become informed about her actual stance. Um, but I've always thought the guy was genuine, and I got to tell him something that I've told you guys before, but for a lot of new listeners from the Glenn Beck Show uh, that might be tuning in today for the first time, I want to share again. Part of what made me do the Survival Podcast was Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck was an inspiration that launched this community. So some of you guys that are detractors of Glenn, but you like me, understand without Glenn being the final piece of the puzzle that pushed me into doing podcasting, there may be no survival podcast community at all. Uh, I told Glenn, uh, and he, you could see he wanted to get off the set. He's a busy man and get on with his life. But he took time to talk to me after the episode. And I told him, and I showed him even my little MP3 recorder, and said, I started this, and one of the reasons is because I listened to your show, and in 2008, you started talking about storing food and basic preparedness, and I realized that if it was on your show, that it was going to go mainstream with people, and it, I was on the right track in what I was thinking. Uh, and additionally, I realized that it was some of the best, it was the, it was the part of his show I enjoyed the most that day. It was more important to me than the politics and everything else. So because Because I believed that there was a market for it, I was able to take my passion and turn it on and, and, and turn the podcast up and ended up with a huge audience of 35,000 people a day now that listens to this show. And he beamed. And I told him, I said, you know, I have a full-time business now, a full-time income. My wife works with me. When I told him that, I saw pure joy, like a pure, you know, that is so awesome for you. I'm so happy to hear that for you. He's a very, very genuine person. And uh, we probably, you know, I'm far more libertarian than Glenn is, so we will not agree on all political facts uh, or political matters, I shouldn't say facts. But I want to say another thing to some of those of you that are pretty hard on Glenn, um, Glenn In between the segments, when he's talking to the audience kind of just off the record, and he's the same guy on camera as off camera, but he'll say some things or reveal some things about himself and be just more personal with people in that time. And it's great that he does that. That alone is a huge uh, mark of respect for me toward him. But I want you to know that some of you that have gotten into more of a non-intervention in stance, uh, that are less of the left-right ideology, Uh, and, and, and are more of the independent ideology now and more of an understanding that you can't just defend everything that capitalism does because there's a lot of corporatism and fascism out there in the economics of the world that it's a collusion between government and corporations that's a problem. It's not the corporation. It's not the government. It's when the two get together that we get really, really bad results. Glenn's starting to ask himself some questions. Um, that I won't say specifically because he reveals what he wants to reveal when he wants to reveal it. I have too much respect for him to, to say, but I'm just telling you, he's starting to ask many of the questions 
that I'm telling you that I asked that led me to where I am with my political ideology today. And I bet you they're the same questions that many of you asked. And I want those of us that are very much libertarian-minded to remember that most of us weren't born libertarians. Uh, we didn't come up through our lives initially as libertarians. Most of us discovered libertarianism along the way, and I believe Glenn's a libertarian. I just believe I'm higher in the you know the little political quiz, and they've got the the, the uh, diamond. I'm closer to the point of the diamond. I'm like at the point of the diamond. He's somewhere up in so. Just understand that libertarianism is a walk and give people time to discover things. Uh, I think it's important. Uh, on another note, I want to tell you that uh, I am uh, really excited to let you guys know I've decided what we're going to do for our 1,000th episode. Um, I think we're just going to do the call-ins again, where you guys call in and tell me about your walk and your life and how things have changed for you as part of the Survival Podcast community, like we did for one of the other anniversaries, or two of them, the first two we did. We skipped the third year. Uh, instead of doing a fourth-year anniversary show like that this time, we'll save it for episode 1,000, which will come up a couple months after our fourth-year official anniversary. Don't call in your stories yet. I'm going to set up a second 800 number dedicated for this that will make it easier for me to put all of those aside and get it ready. The show might be four hours that day. It might be something that takes you a long time to listen to. It might be something that whenever you're feeling depressed, you pull up. And I recommend the other, the other ones we've done like that, the same thing. The other thing I want to do as part of episode 1000, and you guys can start sending me your pictures right away from this, I want to do the Revolution is You 2.0. I did the slideshow with all of you guys sending me pictures of what you're doing uh, for the uh, Revolution Issue video. And I want to put out a second version of it. If you want a picture to be in that video, you can send it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put Revolution 2.0 in the subject line to help me sort them. And send me, you know, send me, don't send me 80 pictures, guys. Send me like two or three of your very best. And uh, I'm going to tell you right now, the way to get in the video is for people and their faces to be seen. This is not send me a picture of your gardens. Look at the, the, the one we did before. I'll link to it today for those of you who haven't seen it. And send me pictures of what you're doing, your family, yourself actively pursuing self-sufficiency. Send me pictures of training with your firearms, working in your garden, building stuff, storing up your food, putting it away, whatever. Send me pictures like that. Let's do Revolution 2.0. Uh, along with a major badass listener feedback show to celebrate episode 1000, which is only 140 episodes away. And I think it's so awesome we're going to reach that milestone together. Somebody suggested I ask Glenn to come on the show for episode 1000. I don't have that deep of a relationship there yet, but if it's possible, I'd love to get him on just for five minutes. That would be a huge thing to put a crown on that. Also, some of you guys have sent me some emails saying Glenn is looking for musicians. And that maybe Greg Yao's and some of the work that he's done and the stuff that we've written together would be good. I sent off to uh, one of the pro producers of the show, uh, the Revolution Is You video, along with the uh, with the MP3 of What Have You Done? We'll see. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm pretty charged up, and I want you to know what I just did before I put on the show or you know turned on the recorder today. Uh, after I sent that email off to Glenn Beck's producer. And I uh, told her, hey, take a look. Here's like, because Glenn was saying yesterday on the way home, I heard him on the radio saying he doesn't want Lee Greenwood flag waving. And it was like he was saying the stuff Greg was saying when we were writing the song, What Have You Done? Uh, so I sent her that. I also said for something a little more upbeat, Here's a Revolution is You. I sent it, and then I went to YouTube, and I played the video. If you've never, I know you hear the song every day at the beginning of the show, you hear a little bit. At the end, you hear the whole thing if you choose to listen to it all. But if you've never seen the video, go to YouTube today. I'll put a link in the show notes. And watch the video, The Revolution Is You. 
It will teach you something very, very important for us all to understand. You are not alone. There are a lot of people out there just like us working on independence, self-sufficiency, liberty, and personal freedom. And the best way we can get our personal freedom back is to take it. Vote. Vote your conscience. Do the things you want to politically. I don't tell anybody how to think or what to think politically. But I will tell you that voting is nothing compared to establishing liberty in your own life. And that's how we spread its message. And that's how we reach the people that we think are unreachable. We don't reach them by saying, you're wrong, vote this way instead of that way. We reach them by demonstrating liberty and taking them on the most wonderful ride of the world with us by demonstrating and leading the way. Okay, with that all wrapped up, I know I went long today, but I had a lot to cover there. Let's go ahead and take the first listener call of the day. Uh, hey, Jack. This is Jack from uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, I had a question about open carry. Um, here in Oklahoma, for the last few years, the state legislature has been trying to pass a uh, form of open carry. And uh, long story, sometimes it's passed and been vetoed by the governor, and then other times it's failed miserably in the in the house um what are your feelings on open carry are you for it are you against it uh, i would just kind of like to hear your thoughts on that and if by chance if you did live in a state that allowed open carry what would you personally open carry if you would open carry at all um i have my concealed carry permit um what do you prefer just to carry as concealed? I know that's kind of a, a different question altogether, but I'd just kind of like to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate your show. Have a good day. That's a great question, and here's how I feel about open carry. I believe it should definitely be allowed. I think that uh, I have no problem with an open carry legislation, and I would love to see more states enact open carry. What I don't want to see, though, is open carry adopted to the exclusion of concealed carry? Because I think that is a big mistake. There's a mentality that, you know, the concealed carry guy, if you have open carry available, the guy hiding the gun is the one to worry about because, and that's just, I think that there is an understanding there on some level, but I think that goes back to the days when open carry was everywhere and it wasn't even an issue yet and nobody was even discussing whether or not we should really take away guns, not on a serious level or get any traction with it anyway. Actually, the Second Amendment's been under attack since the day it was penned and signed off on. If it wasn't, it would have never been created. But there was really not a, a strong movement for it in the, uh, let's say, the days of the Old West when everybody open carried. So at that time, the guy with a gun hidden, yeah, maybe you could say he's trying to hide his gun so nobody knows, so he disarms people, and then he can use his gun for some nefarious purpose. But really, even then, I think it was just a mentality, not a reality. So I think concealed carry is important as well, and here's why. There are times and places where I could be somewhere where it's acceptable to carry, but I would prefer not to attract the attention of carrying. Uh, such things would be, uh, let's say a shopping mall with lots of people and kids and stuff like that running around. And I'm not saying if you live somewhere where open carry is allowed and you go do that, that you're wrong if you open carry in a mall. Um, I have no problem with you doing it. I may not want to do it. I may want the option to have a lower profile. Part of the beauty of concealed carry is for the perpetrator of a crime you don't get to know who might shoot your ass if you do something stupid. 
So if I walked, if I was a bad guy and I walked into a mall and I was going to do a shooting and open carry was allowed, I would kind of, before I did whatever I was going to do, peruse the area and if I saw somebody armed, they're target number one. I mean, it just makes sense. Even if you're suicidal, I mean, this is what people don't understand. They want gun-free zones and stuff like that. Even the suicidal gunman, that it knows that it's going to end with his own death, loves the gun-free zone. You say, well, why? He doesn't care if he gets killed. He's committing suicide by cop or whatever. Um, yeah, but he wants to shoot as many people first as possible. So if he went into a police station where everybody has a gun in Trident, he might get one or two shots off and he's going to be riddled full of holes. So what's the opposite of that? Well, the gun-free zone. We'll go to a college campus or an elementary school and do this. Lots of people together, no guns. So when I, if you if you have open carry to the exclusion of concealed carry, then people are able to kind of identify their own gun-free zones. Is it a deterrent to crime? Yeah. Now, see, to me, I think what the ultimate deterrent to crime is, is both. There's guys with guns here, and there's other guys that might have them too, and I'm thinking about knocking over a liquor store. Ah, this could be a bad career move for me as a criminal. And the more of that we have, the more safe we all are. I, I honestly believe that. Now, uh, where I live, we do not have open carry. And to carry in any way, shape, or form that reveals that you're carrying, and this is true of Texas and Arkansas both, is considered brandishing. So when you carry, you need to make damn sure that your gun is carried in such a way that if you went into a convenience store, for instance, and asked for change and you leaned a certain way while you're asking for change and the profile of your gun was misinterpreted by the store clerk and they were to call the police and say you were brandishing, you might have a serious problem and might even lose your, your concealed carry permit. Uh, you might even do some jail time depending on how it all worked out. So concealed means concealed in these two states and in many other states as well. Uh, with open carry, we get away from that. If we have open carry and concealed carry and something like that happens inadvertently, hey, there's, you know, come on. Hey, there's open carry allowed. So I think it's better for us that way. Now, what would I carry? Well, in most instances right now, I carry a 1911. And I carry a 1911 because it is the most, uh, the gun that I am the most comfortable shooting, period. Uh, because it's what I started shooting when I was eight, nine years old with my grandfather and my dad. It was a, it was a 1911 45 uh, ACP, and I when I picked that gun up, it just feels good in my hand. It feels good. In, but what did I just say? That there is a issue with concealed meaning concealed. So with certain clothing, and it's and it's just a large frame gun, right? So sometimes it's just a comfort issue. Uh, my 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 other gun of choice right now is a Bursa Thunder in 380. And it's a very inexpensive gun, but I know a lot of law enforcement officers that carry them as a backup. It's worked flawlessly for me. I've never had any malfunctions with, let's say, no more malfunctions than I've seen in anything else. Uh, and the 380 is a damn good personal defense round. So, uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a nice gun. Uh, but I have been very impressed with the Keltec, and I am probably going to pick up a Keltec in, in 380. And uh, make that my uh, my smaller scale carry gun, and I think that it's a better gun than the Bursa. I think it carries nicer than the Bursa. I think it points nicer than the Bursa. It's definitely lighter than the Bursa. Uh, so that's kind of with the concealed carry. I, I swap between the 1911, depending on my clothing, and a Bursa 380. On another note, altogether, if you said Jack, it's open carry, I would get a great, uh, you know outside the belt uh, uh, holster for my 1911 I would carry my 1911 constantly that would if I had open carry I wouldn't even then, then unless I'm like 
you know, in shorts or something where you're, you're playing sports or, or something where it's kind of in the way, and then I would revert to a smaller frame gun. But I, that's one of the reasons I would like open carry. It would let me carry my gun of choice uh, with, with, with less complication, and that means I would be carrying it more often. Uh, with that great question, let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hi, Jack. This is Matt from Chicago. To demonstrate or not to demonstrate, that is my question. The G8 and NATO summits were scheduled to take place in Chicago this May. G8 was just moved to Camp David, but the NATO summit will still be bringing many of the world's leaders to Chicago and along with them protests. Because there are sure to be many liberty-minded individuals exercising their rights, I would like to partake in photographing and videoing the events, demonstrations, and protests surrounding the summit. But I'm obviously concerned about the heightened police presence and the violent protesters these summits typically attract. Unfortunately, Mayor Rahm Emanuel has been gearing up to extinguish anyone wanting to voice an opinion about these events. I've checked out the Carlos Miller blog that you mentioned. It has been very helpful. Um, do you or any of the listeners have any more resources or tips that might be useful other than just to stay the hell away from this event? Thanks. Well, it seems like you opened with a question, but it wasn't your really question. So let's take the first question just as I would generally answer it to people. To demonstrate or not to demonstrate, if there's a demonstration going on, a protest of any form, regardless of whether I agree with what you think about it or not, in other words, if you're on side A of the issue and I'm side B, or you're side B and I'm side A, it's, I'm going to tell you it's a personal choice, and if you feel that you should go out and exercise your right to protest, you should do it, and as long as you do it within the boundaries of the law and the constitutional spirit of the law, which means public dem demonstration is protected under the Constitution, as long as you're not damaging the property of others, blocking streets and things like that, threatening people or getting violent or tearing things apart, as long as you're demonstrating within the constitutional spirit of the law, if it's what you want to do, you should do it. That doesn't mean go do it, because there are consequences to doing it today. And each of us must decide for ourselves whether or not we can stand through those consequences and decide exactly how we participate in such things. You probably won't see me out carrying a sign and yelling or chanting a slogan anytime soon. It's just not me. It's not the way that I do things. But I would defend to the death your right to do so. And I think that it's important that we preserve that right. So if we're going to do that, then for the people that it is their thing, it's what they should do. But they should do it again within the bounds of the law. And when I say that, uh, I don't mean disobeying unconstitutional law. I find it our duty uh, to disobey constitutional law where and when we can uh, within certain boundaries. Because you can't fight for liberty from a jail cell or dead. I guess one, one guy I can think of that did it was Mandela, but it's the exception, not the rule. Okay, so there's on the demonstrate, it's personal choice. Uh, but please don't, when you demonstrate, don't damage other people's property. Don't give the authorities an excuse to crack down on you. And when they do, make sure that you comply with the rest. Comply with the rest. Put your hands behind your back and say, okay, I'll, I'll go freely and quietly. Because the one thing they'll always try to do is put resisting arrest on you, especially when you are the one doing the photography and the video. Now let's talk about the photography and the video. Uh, first of all, the, the Carlos Miller blog the gentleman mentioned is called Photography is Not a Crime. And if those of you who think that it's just the protesters are jerks and the, and it's, you know, the, the, the cops are all good and, it, and if they're just all being paid as protesters and there's no real problem here and you need to go listen, go, go to over Carlos Miller's blog and you need to see what's really going on. 
Uh, and you need to understand that, that, you know, the reality here, and I know I got a lot of new listeners from Glenn Beck that might polarize to one side of this issue or the other. Uh, and a lot of you don't. I'm not putting anybody's podcast. And a lot of my listeners that have been here forever would also polarize to one side. The reality here, folks, is that most of the people that you're being told are your enemies are not your enemies. Now, they may be being used by your enemies. Occupy Wall Street. The average person out there is probably not your enemy. They're probably pissed off at the same people you are, but they're being manipulated as pawns by a group of people that are actually behind the problem. But don't blame the people. Understand that the puppet master is the problem, not the puppet. And, and for us to actually understand each other, we need this stuff recorded and covered accurately, and private citizens are the ones to do that. But first thing Carlos Miller would tell you is get a press pass. Second thing he would tell you is carry at least two or three cameras and video over still pictures so that when one's taken from you, you can turn the other one on. He would also tell you go with a group. It's very hard to abuse and accuse somebody of arrest when there's like 20 people all filming the same thing because too much video goes out. Another thing he would tell you is find a way to stream your video so they can't take it away from you so that it's available as evidence in the future. Now, in Illinois, you've got some other problems there, and I don't know how the whole wiretapping bullshit law uh, comes up in this, and there's a law on the books that right now may prevent you from doing this. So get a press pass and be a member of the press and make sure that what you're doing is visible, right? So what I'm saying is no hidden pocket cameras and pocket recorders. Be public with you because so, I think my understanding, you know, I want to talk to a lawyer in your area before you do this, right? But my understanding of the Illinois law is that when they're being taped without their knowledge, that's when it falls under this, this overly broad wiretapping law. A judge in Illinois, to his credit, ruled the law unconstitutional under the Illinois state constitution, from my understanding, not the federal constitution, but the law still on the books. It has to go to another level before it can be completely struck down. So uh, it's in place, and the DA out there in, in Chicago has said that he's going to continue to prosecute as long as the law is in effect, regardless of what this judge said. That's his job, not to make a judgment. So you got to be real careful spe specifically in that climate. And that might be why they're there, because that law is in existence. Uh, but I would try to get press credentials, which isn't hard to do. You can pretty much create them for yourself. Have a blog and be a press person for that blog or write for somebody else's blog or submit photography. If you're going to do this, the more you can do to legitimize yourself as a true member of the press, the better. The reality is you shouldn't have to. But it can be helpful. Um, I don't have any other resources. Carlos Miller is the guy that I think is doing the most in this world. And I do think, folks, it's important that we start documenting what's going on. Uh, back to Glenn. Glenn said he's building a library so that people will know what happened and how it happened. Well, let's build a video library. Let's build a photography library. Let's let people know the truth about what's doing, how our rights are being infringed upon. And I think that we need to understand that a lot of people that are helping the rights be infringed upon don't know that they're pawns. And we need to focus on those moving the chess pieces far more than the pieces themselves. Let's please all think about that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Prepper and Non. I live in uh, central Washington. Think about building this shop and uh, trying to look at alternative ways to heat it. Think about uh, seeing some of the evacuated tube solar collectors for, you know, I don't know, 900 bucks or so. Thinking about one of those on the roof with a 12-volt uh, solar pump system to heat the floor. question is, is if you're not circulating it through the floor, do those things have a uh, issue if they get too hot at all? Will they, uh, I don't know, build up pressure with the uh, glycol mix in there and 
cause the tubes to crack or anything. Um, anyway, got another question too about a little uh, libertarianism. A um, bunch of guys we go uh, man camping in the back forty of our property every winter around December, and my wife's girlfriend came out there drinking a bottle of Carla Rossi. Had a little bit too much to drink, but started telling all of us that we're libertarians. That was before I knew more about it. Um, only question I got is, how does a uh, government provide a military in a libertarian situation? Because if everybody's got everybody's back, well, who's going to buy the uh, big guns? Because not one person's going to say, hey, I'll buy the nukes to defend our country. Uh, anyway, well, I think it's a lot. two-part question, Enjoy isn't it? And uh, the first part is on passive solar heating. And as you guys know, I've been working hard to put together a panel of experts uh, that panel of experts includes Tim Glantz from Old Grouts Military Surplus on military vehicles, bug-out vehicles, and prep vehicles. It includes Stephen Harris on this type of subject right here. Paul Wheaton has joined as the permaculture expert when it's something I think he could do a better job of with than me. And uh, Darby Simpson, who you'll be hearing later from today on some questions on specifically pastured poultry and stuff like that, livestock and things, because he lives that life and he's doing that. So those are the first four members of the panel. So I'm going to defer the first part of this question to Stephen Harris, uh, Mr. Electric Avenue himself, guru of all things alternative energy. Uh, I'll let Steve answer that, and I'll come back with an answer on the libertarian question. Hi, Jack. This is Stephen Harris of Solar1234.com, calling in to answer the question from the guy in central Washington that wants to heat his shop with evacuated solar hot water tubes and to run the hot water into the heating system in the cement floor of his shop. Well, first, what is an evacuated solar tube? It is a glass tube inside of a glass tube, and the back of the inner tube is black, and there's a vacuum in between both of the tubes. So it's like shining sunshine into a thermos bottle full of water. You get all the sunshine in, but you get very little heat loss because there's a vacuum between the two tubes. You get low heat loss, but high heat quality, and it heats the water up. So it's like a thermos, but you can flow the water through the sink. First, about solar evacuated tubes, just like solar Fresnel lenses, okay? Get this through your head. It's not a damn lightsaber that is going to make some infinite amount of energy. You're not putting this thing on your roof and saying, Luke, use the sun, Luke. A person in a dark mask and cape is not going to walk by your shop, look at the solar on your roof and say, the sun is strong in this one. It's got no more energy hitting those solar tubes than basically the amount of sunshine that hits your chest on a sunny day, okay? It's a long, thin tube. Take all that surface area put it, you know, stretch it out and be about the size of the amount of sunshine that hits your chest. So you're not going to need one tube to try to heat your place. You are going to need a lot of tubes. And as I'm going to illustrate, you're going to need more tubes than you can possibly think. Now, the tubes do make 200 degree Fahrenheit water, okay? 200, 212, 220 with glycol, okay? It gets, makes hot water. Now, you might think 200 degree water is good. But it's not. 200-degree water sucks. It sucks bad. There's this little thing in thermodynamics. Don't let your eyes glaze over, okay? It's called delta T. 
means the difference in temperature. As in, the higher in a difference of temperature, the faster you lose it. So you take a red-hot poker and you put it in a hot fire and it gets red-hot, right? You pull it out and you hold it in the air and you look at it and you see how fast that red-hot color goes away. Okay, It fades away real quickly. That's because the higher the difference of the temperature, in this case between the poker and the air, the quicker the heat gets transferred away. Well, guess what? This works in your solar hot water heater as well as a red hot poker. So what you want to do with solar is you want to heat air. You want solar hot air. The air goes from the building into the heater. Sunshine hits it. It heats it up to about 90 or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And then it gets blown or dumped right back into your shop. Hot air going directly into the building. No heat exchangers required, okay? Air goes in, gets heated, gets dumped back in. Now, with solar hot water, you've got to have at least 140-degree water to make an effective heat exchange. And remember, you've got to have temperature difference to get heat exchange, so you can't take 90-degree water and heat, you know, get good 70-degree heat off it. You've got to have 140-degree water as a rule of thumb. And that goes into a heat exchanger, in this case pipes, pipes under the concrete floor, and then that heat must go from the water to the pipe to the concrete then to the air, and thus every time it goes from one item to another, you have more of a heat loss. And if you have all that hot water going from the evacuated tubes in the roof into the insulated pipes, again, insulated pipes going from the roof down to the floor, there's going to be, you got really hot water in there, 200-degree water. So what does that 200-degree water red-hot poker want to do? It wants to lose as much heat on the way from the roof down to the floor as it possibly can. So heating hot air to 95 to 95 degrees F, not hotter, and then transferring the hot air can be three to four times more efficient. That's three to four times more efficient than solar hot water. Yeah, that's right. You need three to four times the surface area of evacuated tubes on your roof, costing many hundreds of dollars each, than you would need if you just heated the air with solar and dumped it back into the building. So instead of having 100 square feet of solar hot air for heating um, solar hot air, you need to have three to 400 square feet of evacuated tubes making hot water to heat your building. Gee, the novelty of these evacuated tubes is falling off quickly, doesn't it? Now, it only takes two pieces of flat glass in a black wooden box to heat hot air, not evacuated tubes. Then you have the floor itself. People think that it's really easy and sexy to run pipe through the concrete floor and then to heat it up and use it to heat a building. Well, the truth is you're heating up tons and tons of concrete before it even starts to heat the air up in the building. And just what is this concrete floor sitting on? Uh, the earth, the ground. The earth is the world's largest heat sink in the world. Well, it is the world. Enough sunshine falls on the earth in a few minutes to power everything on the entire planet for a full year. And what does the Earth do with all this heat from the sun? It absorbs it, all the sunshine. So what do you think is going to happen when you get sunshine that hits your evacuated tubes, heats up the water, the water flows through the pipes, loses more heat, goes into the pipes and the concrete, heats up the concrete that is sitting on the Earth? You got it. A lot of that damn heat is going to go into the Earth, into the planet, into the ground, not into your building. 
So if you have hot water, heat, and your concrete floor, you darn well better now have three to four inches of insulated foam under your concrete to disconnect the concrete from the infinite heat sink that is the planet Earth. Whoops. Now the cost of your solar hot water heating just went up more. Look, if you want to heat with solar, you really want to heat with solar hot air. You do not need evacuated tubes to make solar hot water or hot air. Heck, a standard solar oven gets to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, you know, twice 200 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just glass, wood, and a few reflectors. Again, you don't want a lightsaber. You want a lot of air flowing at about 90 to 95 F. If your air gets over 100 F, then you turn up the speed of the air flowing through the solar heater to get more at a cooler temperature. This is how you get higher thermal efficiency. Making solar hot air is brain dead easy. I still have the TSP solar hot air combo on www.solar. 1234.com. It's the book Sunshine of Dollars that tells you how to get all the free glass in the world you could want to make solar hot air heating. And now that your glass is free, it's cheap to make solar hot air. I show you how to make multiple solar hot air heaters in the book, multiple solar ovens. I got two other books, The Complete Handbook of Solar Air Heating, Movable Insulation. I won't go into details because, one, they're awesome. Take my word for it. And two, I talk about them on previous shows. All my previous TSP shows, and I'm currently the record holder for the most shows, are linked at www.solar1234.com. On solar1234.com, it's $49 for all three books that are normally $75, so save $26. It's only for you, TSP listeners, and the MSB discount does apply, so you can get them even cheaper. If you are not part of the TSP membership Support Brigade, join. It saves you money, and it is awesome. Now, Central Washington, please, when you need your sunshine the most, it's cloudy and rainy basically all winter, so where's your sunshine? Uh, can I say one thing? Wood heat. You got a lot of wood. You got a lot of trees. You got a lot of scrap wood. Uh, hot wood heaters are off the shelf. You can even heat water and run it through your concrete, or you can just use a uh, right in the shop, uh, I suggest for simplicity that instead of going with a solar route in central Washington, that you look at wood heat. Again, this is Stephen Harris for Jack Spearco and the Survival Podcast. I'm at www.solar1234.com. I love you guys. You're awesome. I can't wait to be back on again, and we're going to talk about some of the best stuff you never heard. Thanks, guys. Bye. And that's why we have a panel of experts, because while I could have answered that question, I could have nowhere near covered it in the depth and breadth that Steve did, and that's why I'm very happy that we have him as part of our expert panel. Um, on the libertarian question, that one I can do for you. What you have to keep in mind as you study libertarian philosophy is libertarianism is like most things. There are degrees of libertarianism, and some libertarians are complete anarchists, meaning that there is no role for a state, for a government at all. I am not a man, an anarchist. I am a minarchist. I don't even argue with anarchists anymore because minarchism's on the way to anarchism, so we got a long way to go before we even get to anything remotely close to a minarchist federal government uh, and a minarchist society at the state and federal level, I mean the state and local levels as well. So we got so far to go, pff, 
And, you know, if we ever, like, so evolved as human beings, we could naturally evolve to an anarchist state, that would be wonderful. And as uh, one of our founders said, if men were angels, there'd be no need of a state. So I don't believe men are angels, and I believe that we need a state, and I believe that the federal government should serve certain roles. The first and primary role of the federal government should be the, to ensure the individual rights of the each and every individual, period. Uh, regardless of race, color of skin, creed, religion, natural origin, sexual origin, I don't care what you are. I don't care what you are. You, everybody should have the same rights. Along with that, everybody should have the same responsibilities, and when responsibilities are violated, on some level, they're just social consequences to those responsibilities, and on some others, we call those crimes and people go to jail or to prison, depending on the degree and severity of that crime. I believe that all crimes should have a victim. If there is no victim, there is no crime. But when there is a crime, I believe that you should go away for a while to a place where you can think about what you did and decide maybe I shouldn't do that to my fellow citizens anymore. And I believe that place is called jail or prison, depending again on the severity. I believe the government should run that. And I believe the government should run the judicial system. I believe another role of our government is to ensure that there is a potential and ability for commerce within our country and outside of our country. So that includes things like dealing with trade treaties, uh, dealing with, uh, with, with treaties with other nations, with dealing with uh, interstate commerce. Uh, and mainly the way that they should do that within our own country is seeing to the building, construction, and maintenance of roads. That's what they should do. They should do a good job at that. And if they weren't doing all the other crap that they're not supposed to be doing, then we could have the best road system in the world, which we do not. I also believe that they should see to our national defense that they're called upon to do so, and I believe that the military should be made up primarily of volunteer soldiers. Uh, and when I say volunteer soldiers, I don't just mean the way that they are now. I mean that we should have less of a standing army and more of a militia, a true militia-type arrangement. But this is the modern age where people have jets and tanks and all kinds of things that go boom and kill lots of people. So we need a modern, lethal army, unlike many of my libertarian contemporaries that say, if we were completely non-interventionist and not involved in any war, we wouldn't need all that stuff. I believe we don't need all that stuff, but we need some of that stuff. We need much of that stuff. We don't need to outspend 120 other nations in the world combined on the military, but yeah, we need some real good heavy-duty hardware and some well-trained men and women that can run it. And when somebody threatens us, we need to knock the living crap out of them, tell them don't do that again or it's going to be worse. And there's nothing non-libertarian about that. Now that doesn't mean that we go out and start blowing people up because we don't like what they're doing. We blow people up when they try to blow us up or harm us directly. And if we built that type of a national defense system, we'd be far more secure as a nation. So I am not opposed to some level of taxation to pay for those very limited roles of government. And something along the lines of a 5% national sales tax could probably fund every single stinking bit of that. We would no longer tax income. We would no longer punish success. We would no longer punish productivity. And people say, well, then maybe rich people would sit on their money and not do anything with it. Rich people don't sit on their money and not do anything with it. And if they do, who cares? Reality is rich people put their money back to work to make more money. That creates jobs and spurs the economy. So that would be my version of a minarchist, uh, libertarian-style government, which, believe it or not, is pretty dadgone close to what we had when the whole thing started and we signed off on that thing called the Constitution. And then our founders collectively said, hey, we better come up with this Bill of Rights thing because if we didn't say the people had a right to some someone, someday we'll say they didn't. 
And if we actually just followed those two documents, actually it's one document because the amendments were added to the Constitution, uh, I'll tell you what, if we did that, we would have a much better nation. We'd be much closer to the libertarian ideology that I suppose. So there you go. Those are my thoughts on that one. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Chris. I wanted to share a few things with you from the tornadoes that ripped across uh, Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana uh, last Friday. I live in northern Kentucky near Crittenden, and uh, here's what happened last Friday and, and the weekend. The weather had been calling for bad storm 24 hours ahead of time. It's important to pay attention to those weathermen. Sometimes uh, people ignore them, but this time they got it right. I was outside uh, when things started. I was walking into the garage, and just out of the corner of my eye, I saw a pretty dark column coming down to the ground about a mile from our house. Yelled for the kids and the wife. We all headed straight to the basement and stayed there. Weather band radio and flashlights waiting for us. Thirty minutes later, the radio reported the tornadoes were to our east, so we came out. Checking things out, we were surprised. Literally no damage, not a shingle off, branch down, or siding torn. Power was still on. The only small problem was the cable was out. Since things seemed fine at our house, uh, we headed out to eat some dinner and then started to realize how bad it was. The damage started about a quarter mile from our house. Trees were uprooted, broken, barn roofs torn off. Uh, as we got closer to a local subdivision, we saw house roofs lift off, second stories demolished, and cars looked like they'd been in a demolition derby. Dinner plans were canceled. We headed home and uh, got some things to help out. Picked up a chainsaw and gas, generator and diesel, put my tractor on my trailer, and headed over to that neighborhood. All the gas stations by the expressway were torn up. Power was out, so nobody could get any gas or anything there. So having some preps there really helped out. Um, about an hour after the storm, there were a few police, a few firemen, but literally hundreds of people, uh, just regular citizens, uh, helping out their neighbors. Amazingly, despite all the destruction, no one was killed in that neighborhood. And i got to say, Jack, somehow it's uh, different when you see things, you know, out happening in Kansas or, you know, in the typical tornado alley and you see it uh, right down the block from you. Uh, even though we were fine, uh, being able to have some preps and help out, uh, really helped us get through it. Uh, nothing happened to us, but it was an awfully close call. It also drives home the point you always make about, uh, you know, shit hit the fan sometimes can be uh, very personal. Uh, some houses were left as piles right next to houses that seemed untouched. Um, and, uh, you know, it, when it's uh, your time, uh, it's your time. Uh, the tornado cut its path across uh, the expressway. And uh, after it uh, uh, tore up that neighborhood, it headed straight towards the horse farm. Two people were killed on that farm, uh, literally uh, wiped the house clean, uh, killed 15 horses, uh, tore them to pieces. Um, and uh, there was nothing those folks could do to a prep. So while it's important to prep, to be prepared, uh, it's also important to realize that there's only so much we can do. So make the most of what we have, both resources and time. A few things I picked up uh, to end on. Uh, that I'd like to have in my tornado kit. Tarps were in short supply. I'm going to add a few more of those. Nails and actually two-by-fours to fix them onto your roof. Paper and Sharpies uh, in the tornado closet and a Ziploc bag. A lot of people uh, had to leave after the storm, and uh, nobody had any way to contact them to ask them what to do with their stuff or if they were going to come back. So just be able to leave notes to rescue workers and things like that if you have to vacate your property. I'm also going to finally get around to putting uh, together that video of all my stuff. Uh, things were tossed all over the place, and uh, it'd be nice to have that to identify your things for insurance, if nothing else. And lastly, I'm going to put a sledgehammer, a pry bar, one of those foo bars uh, in my tornado closet to help dig myself out uh, if something would happen to, to our place, God forbid. Uh, there were a lot of people that were uh, 
not really trapped, but also couldn't uh, find an easy way to get themselves out. Uh, last thing, so don't end on a downer. Uh, SEC tournament this weekend, NCAA starting next week. Uh, being in Kentucky, got to say, go Cats. Well, let me first say I'm just glad that your family escaped the damage here, and I don't have a lot to add other than I know how it feels to have stuff happen that close to you and realize it could have been you. Uh, back in the uh, in the late 90s, there was a huge tornado outbreak uh, in Texas, the one that uh, an F3 hit downtown uh, Fort Worth and just literally blew all the windows out of the Bank One uh, tower. And that storm split in half, and my wife literally drove around that tornado because she wouldn't stay where she was supposed to stay and uh, showed up and uh, didn't really realize how bad it was. And then we went out, and less than a mile from our home, there was parts of our neighborhood, literally houses ripped too flat to the foundation. Uh, and then the tornado outbreak last year uh, here in Arkansas, one literally went through the valley directly behind the mountain that's behind my house. So that was less than a mile away, and it, it came all the way across Lake Washita and then went up through the Hot Spring Village area and did a lot, a lot of damage. The, the church that was damaged where it crossed Highway 7 is still repairing the damage today, and many of the people that live back through that valley are still repairing the damage today. And even though it's over a year later, it's very clear where that tornado came through, and that was not considered a large tornado, nothing on the order of things that happened last year like Joplin or Birmingham. And it is different when you see it for yourself, even if it's not where you live. When we drove through Birmingham, Alabama last year, my wife and I really, we couldn't really say anything other than, oh my God. When we, when we actually were able to see, instead of a video of it, to actually see it, and you just look at it and you think to yourself, where would you even start? And the more I look at this, I think there were some great tips there from the caller, but I, I, I think more and more people, guys, you got to understand that you need a secondary location and a plan, and you need to have some of your stuff not be in your, your home. Uh, and if that's a fully stocked RV at an RV storage facility 20 miles away, then maybe that's what it is. And, uh, you know, people say, well, it could lose both of them, and I guess you could, but the odds are much, much lower uh, that, you know, that you'd get both hit. And you can also look at the standard path that storms kind of take through your area and try to use that to your advantage when you pick your location. But please get some of your stuff out of your home. Please have arrangements with family, some of your stuff at their place or some of your, their stuff at your place or something like that because it is – it's different than what we always think of when we think of, you know, the end of the world as we know it and whatever and the shit hitting the fan. And we, we look at that and we think, well, you know, that society's going to break down, but I'll bug into my place and I'll fortify it. Well, you know, there's an old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And the, the fundamental reality there is that there are forces beyond uh, our ability to, uh, to alter. And tornadic storms are one of those forces. So are floods, mudslides, and forest fires. And all of those, and volcanic events, and all of those, have, earthquakes, every single one of those, has the potential to render your entire dwelling completely, totally destroyed in a matter of seconds. And should you be fortunate enough to survive that, then you're standing there with nothing. 
And that's why I think building redundancy, and we'll probably do another show on building that type of redundancy, creating bug-out locations more in line with low-cost, simple solutions uh, and how to make them secure easy. I'm warming to this idea of putting the RV into storage as the bug-out location and not keeping it on on a site because you have much more security that way. Uh, I think that might be, and then maybe even you have a piece of land with some electrical hookups and all, but there's nothing there. You go there in the event of that damage. Or for a lot of people, I mean, guys, you could, you know, renting a place at a KOA or something like that while you rebuild is better than living, you know, in a FEMA, uh, FEMA trailer on, on a FEMA compound, which is where a lot of these people are going to end up. Or bunking with family and not having your own space. I mean, there's a lot of... A lot of value in a four to six thousand dollar used RV and a hundred bucks a month in storage fees at a secure facility. Uh, it's a lot of peace of mind for not a lot of money. Not everybody has the means to it, uh, but there's other ways to do it as well. And uh, it's one of the things that came up a lot on the Glenn Beck show, uh, specifically with the screeners. Before we got to the show, we had a lot of conversations about that type of thing. And it's got me thinking more and more about it. Uh, so with that, let's take another call. Jack, this is Joe out in Tennessee. If you had $2,000 right now to invest in bullion and you were either going to buy gold and or a mix of silver, which which would you do right now and why? Thank you and uh, appreciate the podcast. Out. Well, a few is not very specific, but let's say a few means three because a few is more than a couple and more than one, but not a lot. So three would be the lowest number. There would be a few. I would probably, if I own none of any, just say nothing, or maybe one or two coins laying around or something, I'd probably look to invest somewhere around 2,000 in silver and 1,000 in gold, or maybe even 2,500 in silver and 500 in gold. If you wanted to do 15 and 15, I would be okay. It's not going to come out that even because of the way things are. But if you want bullion, obviously you're talking about physical metal. I would buy American silver eagles and American gold eagles. You say, well, you can't buy a gold eagle for $500. Well, for a little bit more than that, you can buy a quarter ounce one. And I'm going to tell you that you might even want to look at some of the more fractionalized gold than that. And it's part of, part of why I would lean towards silver right now. Um, there's been some big changes that our government's made that any transaction over $600 has to have a 1099 issued. It's going to cost reporting. Yes, you can sell silver eagles without tax consequences up to a certain number a year. Yes, in many instances, they avoid sales taxes. But once you go over certain thresholds, you do pay taxes. It also simply puts it on the books. My belief is that silver and gold is the most anonymous and unregulated form of currency in the world. So I want to own it not just for its inflation hedge, but for its anonymity. And if I have fractionalized gold and ounce silver stuff, and it's under the $600 threshold, I can sell a little here, a little there, and I can stay anonymous. And I'm not saying that that's what you need to do or what you should do, but at least the options available. So that's one reason. Uh, and when you start looking at even an ounce of gold, you know, trading at about 1600 bucks today, um, you, one ounce of gold sold is going to result in reporting. So just the ability to keep things anonymous. And if I need money, like I've decided, you know, I, oh, I put the money there, but now I need it. Maybe I don't want full 1600 bucks. Maybe I want a couple hundred dollars. It's much more easy to do with fractionalized silver. Uh, one ounce silver selling for about $33, I think today's $34, bucks, some $32, somewhere in there. I didn't even look, but I know it's in that range today. Um, so it just makes it easier for me to take only a little bit out here and there. 
So that's part of it. The other part of it is I believe there's more upside in silver right now than gold, short term and possibly long term as well. And uh, it gives, and I, I'm a big believer in two is one and one is none, and we could take that up as far as we want. So I would rather have 10 dimes than a dollar. And it's, it's, you pay a premium on gold when you start buying quarter ounces and tenth ounces that you don't pay on silver when you're buying ounces. So that's probably what I would do, and I would stick to the Eagles because even the above-line trading still has some tax advantages for that first investment. If you said, well, I want to do some uh, pre-64 coinage as well, well, maybe $500 of pre-64 coinage, uh, $1,500 in silver, Eagles, and $1,000 in gold, that would be okay too. I would weigh at least two-thirds towards silver right now. I just believe it's a safer bet. Uh, I think it, it found a very strong floor at about 28 bucks, And again, it has all these advantages for liquidation. Going beyond that, I would start to put more emphasis on gold as you, as you went there. The thing about gold is it lets you carry a lot of value in a very small space. You can carry enough gold to support your family for six months on the backside of a big belt buckle. Uh, there's a lot of advantages there. The reality is we do not know the future. And when we put silver and gold away for these purposes, actually what we're hoping is that one day it becomes a legacy that we hand down to our children and they hand down to our grandchildren. And it's a lasting store of wealth that stays in the family that's like break glass in case of emergency and we never have to break the glass. But if we have to break the glass, I don't want just a fire axe back there. I want a fire axe. I want an AR-15. I want a bucket of beans. You know, that's when I'm thinking about breaking the glass. I want everything I could possibly. I want a way to start a fire. I want a way to heat my house. You know, and, 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 and gold and silver give us the ability in all but the absolute biggest breakdown to acquire those things if they're lost, taken, stolen. So I like to keep it fractionalized, uh, especially in the early stages because a few thousand dollars is not that much money when you consider it as part of your wealth. Right? There's plenty of people out there sitting fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars in their four hundred one Ks and IRAs. So taking a three thousand, four thousand, five thousand dollar hedge against that kind of investment is not a lot of money. I mean, this is not money you take out of the grocery budget. This is money that's part of your retirement. So I like to keep that liquid as possible, and silver does that for you better than gold. And again, just on the price ratios right now. Silver is so low compared to the price of gold. There's only two ways that this works out. And I've been saying this for years, and I still feel the same way. Gold is too high and eventually has to come down. That's one. And I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying this is only two. The other one is gold is where it belongs or is going up, and silver must eventually track behind it because the ratio is off now. The, ratio, the historical ratio is just wildly out of whack. So if gold's too high, silver's safer. If gold's where it belongs, silver has more upside. So that's, that's, that's the, the final conclusion of why I'm more heavily weighted towards silver than gold right now. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tyler in South Carolina. I've been a listener of yours for quite a few months now, and I'm really enjoying the, uh, the podcast. I'm learning a whole lot. Uh, my question is, sir, uh, was more of a statement and a question. I hate my job. <laughs> I'm in the pest control industry, and I just not like being around all the chemicals uh, and toxins that I put in people's homes and on my body. Um, and I've really come to the conclusion that I want to start my own business. Um, having said that, I know that you are a very successful entrepreneur. And I was just wondering, advice. Um, I'm really in firearms. 
I really like firearms accessories. I'm thinking about possibly getting my FFL or going into the holster-making industry. Uh, I look forward to hearing your feedback, and I look forward to more shows to come. Have a good day. Well, first thing I'm going to tell you then is get on over to jackspearco.com and listen to my business podcast. It's about 15 minutes long each day. First episodes were actually around five minutes, hence the name Five Minutes with Jack. And start listening from episode one forward. And there's about 90-some-odd episodes of that show now available to you uh, that help you get that mindset toward becoming an entrepreneur and modern marketing and social media and all that stuff. And and a lot of the things that, that, you know, I don't hide how I've built my success. I give it away freely over there. So check that out. On the, the subject matter of like going into the holster business or firearms accessory business, both of those businesses can be lucrative, but both of them are hyper-competitive. And what that means to me is if you go into the accessory business as um, I'm going to set up a resale shop, online, offline, whatever, and get a whole bunch of people supplying me and then resell the products, there's not really a lot of difference between what you're selling and what cheaper than dirt selling for 10% less, other than you can give better service. So you really have to build it heavily on the service side, word of mouth, social media marketing, and specialize in the stuff that's the most in demand at the current time and really specialize in making sure you have that stuff in stock and quick shipping and all that stuff. And it's a tough game to play on a low budget. The holster business, the thing about the holster business is anybody with any amount of time on their hands and some basic knowledge and skills can go into the business of building holsters. There are some people doing really good at it. Orion Concepts and Lenwood Leather are two perfect examples, uh, both of which give uh, discounts to the member support brigade, and those guys are making a living with it. It's been hard startup for both of them, but they're, they're really beginning to get some real success in their lives, and that's great. But again, it's hyper-competitive, so... Here's the, the thing I would tell you in either one of those sectors is what can you do to be different is going to be key. What can you do to meet a need that's not there? And see, there's a guy out there named MJ DeMarco, and I always say, do what you love, follow your passion. He always says, serve the market's needs, screw your passion. And this is a perfect example of how you can do both, which means follow your passion comes first and then figure out how to serve a market need based on your passion. So if firearms and firearm accessories are a passion for you, then how do you find a need? And I can look in a lot of places out there, and you can find these cults, I would call them, firearm cultists. And I don't mean like weird people that have guns and go do chants in the woods. I mean, there's a cult around the 1911. There's people like me. You're, that's what they're going to have. And you, you, I don't care what you come out with. You can come out with the latest and greatest super gun that can shoot a, a squirrel in the ass at a thousand yards from a handgun holster without drawing it. And I'm still going to carry. I'm still going to have a 1911. I might even want that new one, but I'm going to have it, and I'm dedicated to that. And some of these cults are built around frames and formats and guns that are not hugely mainstream. They have extremely devout followings. High point carbines. Caltech sub 2000s are both perfect examples of what I'm talking about. The P, H&R NEF handy rifles, H&R uh, NEF single shots in general, shotguns, rifles, the whole thing. Another example. And a lot of these communities have a desire to do things that they can't get done. They want something that will, you know, do this or that. Or they want, you know, with H&R NEF, people want, uh, this is break action single shot rifle, folks. Like, And they want to have a 
certain cartridge or caliber that's not there. And the barrel would have to actually have to buy like a, you know, a 22 caliber barrel and then bore out and rebore and rechamber the barrel. Uh, and the, you know, H&R NEF's not going to do that. Or they're looking for some type of a custom stock or something like that. And I would encourage you to figure out how you can meet a need like that specifically as a launching point. Because then you're the only one that has it. Right. And that's where you, when you're in the business of doing something, the best position to be is to have something that's wanted, but be the only one that has it. And to do it so well that anybody that says, I want to sell that too, is just going to come to you and go, give me a wholesale price and build a distribution network. That's much more powerful than trying to go, you know, toe to toe with big resellers like Brunel's and Midway USA and, and, uh, you know, uh, all of these, these companies, cheaper than dirt, whoever, you know, paying where you're at. So those are the types of things built if you can, you know, if you have machinist skills and coming up with certain parts that are easy and quick to make so you can produce them in quantity, but yet they're just not available and the market need is there, but it's not big enough for the big boys to mess with. That's how you kind of come out as an entrepreneurial sniper early on. And I bet you if you just go into our firearms forum at the survivalpodcast.com and go into the firearms forum and say, I am looking for ideas for products. What do you wish you could buy for what gun that you cannot currently find anywhere? You will get an amazing test case on where to go with this. And that's... That's the way I would play this. I wouldn't play this as just I have another version of a Kydex or a leather holster or I have a I have all the parts you can look for for your AR-15. When we were at a shot show, a guy listens to my show that I really like. He works with Dave Canterbury as well, writing for his magazine and does some other stuff named Chance Sanders. So it was saying, I have an idea. Let's build a custom AR-15 and let's make it in black. And the reason he was saying that kind of facetiously is every other booth was a guy building custom ARs. And, you know, I mean... And I'm sure some of these guys build amazing guns, but when there's so much of something, it almost becomes white noise. But yet the bump fire system that allow I can't remember what it was called now, but I have a little video I've never put out for you guys. I should put it out for you. But it is a, 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 a I, I, let me, I'll just look it up real quick. Anyway, it's called Slide Fire. That, that was the name I was looking for. So it's this stock that allows you to bump fire. And for those that don't know, bump fire is, If you hold a semi-automatic firearm just the right way and do some things with it, you can get the recoil to cause the rifle to move, and it basically fires as though it were fully automatic. Well, these guys built a stock, so instead of doing this from the hip, you could do this, and basically it allows a rate of fire that's analogous to a full auto in a semi-auto AR-15, but it's legal because it doesn't actually alter the gun, and it's not actually fully automatic. Will it stay that way? I don't know, but it is right now. Well, at SHOT Show, there was a line around the corner for people just to fire it and see what it was like. Well, they're the only ones that have it. There's probably other products being built, but they were first to the market. That's where you want to be. That draws attention. So that's what you need. And, and for those that are thinking, I want a business, and but I don't want to do firearms, it's the same everywhere. What can you do that nobody else can? What can you serve that's not being served? Where can you find people that are addicted to something? It's their thing, and you can go in there and say, what do you wish to God you had for this? What would every one of you buy right now if it were 50 bucks and it would do something you can't currently do? And usually you get answers, and that's a product, and that's a place to start. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My name's Dave. I live in the suburban sprawl known in Denver, Colorado. 
Last April, somebody pointed the sharp end of the threat probability matrix at me and pulled the proverbial trigger. When the dust settled, my wife, uh, 38 years old, was dead, largely due to her poor health. Uh, I could say a lot more about that, but I want to move forward to my question here. I started listening to your show daily after that, and in the intervening uh, 11 months, I've eliminated four major loans from my personal balance sheet. My home mortgage is the only one that remains. Um, One interesting thing I learned is that federal student loans have life insurance. It was a major relief to me when I found that out, sent in a death certificate, and uh, that loan disappeared from my obligations and the obligations of the um, state. As I look towards the future, um, I have a hard time seeing myself fitting into a homesteading-type situation. I see myself being more a mobile contractor moving from place to place, uh, working different jobs, uh, getting involved in different situations, maybe even spending some time floating around in the ocean on a boat. And I'm wondering what your thoughts might be on things that uh, a person in that sort of role could do to improve self-reliance. Maybe another way to ask it is, uh, is there a modern analog to the hunter-gatherer role? Um, What can people in that sort of role do to improve self-reliance? Um, when they don't want to or don't have the ability to invest in a homestead-type situation. Look forward to your thoughts. Thanks. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I don't have a lot of answers for the boat question. I'm not a boat guy, a ship guy, and to me, being on a boat is going to only allow so much self-reliance. I can tell you the easy answers, like make sure you have a bug-out bag, take into account your unique situation. Uh, generally, boats have supply items on board because it's so critical that you do, uh, but it's just not my area of expertise. I'm not a sh- Again, I'm not a boat and ship guy. You want to know how to tool around on a lake where your biggest danger is having to swim a half a mile to shore, I can help you, but the type of thing you're talking about, I don't know. Um, the next, uh, the next part of that though is, you know, is there like a modern hunter gatherer lifestyle that would apply to what you're talking about when you're land bound anyway? And I think yes. I think that like what you really want to do then is start to become very informed about the places you're going. No matter where you are, whether you're in the swamps of Florida or the forests of Indiana or the fields of Indiana for that matter or the, the mountains of Pennsylvania or the plains of Nebraska or wherever you go, there are a lot of ways to so in some way live off the land a little bit, whether it's picking berries or fishing or hunting or, or gathering nuts and, and things like that, finding edible plants. I think that's a good skill set for us all. And if you want to be that to be like your thing, like your way of creating self-reliance and self-sufficiency, then all it requires is knowledge. So I would look to things like if you're not homesteading, then invest in yourself instead of investing in your homestead. So when you get to a new area, see are there any local plant or local wildlife experts that you could hire to take you out on a nature walk two or three different times in different times of the year to explain things to you about what's available and build up your skill set that way. Uh, you know, try to arrange your contracts to coincide and get you into certain states that are great for hunting certain animals and make hunting part of what you do. And, uh, you know, learn ways to preserve the meat that makes it portable for you, like making biltong, like canning. Um, you know, the, and there's the big thing with this. Like, I do talk a lot about the homesteading aspects of preparedness. And that's because it's very important to me and it's what I like to do and it's, you know, how I grew up. 
But what I always try to say, and you know, my final anchoring tenant in the 12 tenets is what you do is what's most important. My plan cannot, will not work for you. So don't think when you hear me talk about gardening and hugel culture and permaculture that that's what you have to do. It's still good for you to be aware of them. It's still good for you to know about them. And maybe you partake in them in very small ways, like a little bit of container gardening here and there. Anybody can grow, you know, some, some lettuce and some greens and stuff like that and a few, uh, self-watering containers on a back porch or even on a balcony if you're living in a condominium or a, a, an apartment. And that adds a lot, some fresh herbs and things like that, and adding that to your cooking. But your concept of kind of being the modern hunter-gatherer uh, and being able to uh, find things that are available to you wherever you go, that's a great one. The ship thing, hey, fishing's always good, but I really don't know that world at all. The other stuff, though, I say go for it and take up the concept of being a modern renaissance man. Uh, where it's more about what you know and what you think and how you can act and what you can do than the stuff you have. That was the answer I gave on Glenn Beck when they said, what's the most important, what's the one thing you got to have? And I told him it was a mindset. So focus on the mindset, the skill set, and the knowledge. And do it in a way that works for you. And I'll say that to anybody out there listening to me today. When you hear me talk about certain aspects of this, you go, I'm just not into that. Don't worry about that. Then focus on the other things. Just make sure you're providing for your own ability to get by if times get tough. That's the key. And it'll lead you in your own walk, in your own way, to your type of preparedness based on your risk tolerance and what you see. And no matter what, you'll be more prepared than you would have been had you not taken the first steps. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I'd like you to settle a debate about when to replace laying hens to maintain good egg production. My father-in-law wants to incubate new chicks every spring and slaughter the older ones when the new ones start laying. So the hens will be about a year and a half or so when they get replaced. I think you should wait two or, three, two or three years before replacing them. My guess is that there's a mathematically perfect age at which to slaughter a group of hens in order to maximize egg production against feed input. Our families have about 12 buff Orpingtons each and we'll be using a homemade incubator I made out of an upright freezer to hatch 100 to 300 chicks this year to be raised mostly for meat. So we're going to have chickens anyway. It's mostly an intellectual debate. Um, we're in southeast Colorado. My name is Danger Brown, and my wife and I have benefited greatly from our continuing education in spiritology and spiritonomics. Thank you so much for all you do. We really appreciate it. Well, uh, I've never heard it called spiritonomics before, but that's cool. I like that. And spiritology, I think that maybe that's been said a time or two. But, hey, thanks for the kind words. On the uh, question, though, about laying hens, again, outside of my direct area of expertise and time to go to the panel of experts, uh, Darby Simpson here, uh, who uh, runs a farm and does a lot of work with, uh, with uh, raising poultry uh, for meat and for eggs, both. Uh, is going to take this question, a uh, newest member of our panel of experts. Uh, so here we go. Darby Simpson with an answer to your question on, uh, on when to retire those hens. Hey, Jack. This is Darby Simpson from Simpson's Farm Market in central Indiana. In response to Danger Brown's question about when to retire old laying hens, uh, typically it's between two and three years of age. There's a debate raging about how long chickens can be efficient um, past that time frame in terms of the amount of feed you give them versus their productivity in laying eggs. But you certainly wouldn't want to 
uh, retire them at 18 months of age. That's definitely too early. Um, efficiency uh, takes a toll after each molting stage, and typically uh, once the birds get ready to hit their third molting stage, their efficiency really dives down. Uh, between their first and second, it's not too bad. After the second one, you see a pretty good drop. Um, and then by the time they're ready for the third molt, from a production standpoint, it's, it's really time to retire them to the freezer as a stewing hen. Um, I'm assuming that he's not using any kind of artificial lighting to enhance the egg production, and that being the case, um, what I would probably suggest is that uh, instead of actually starting them in the spring would be to consider starting them in the fall so that the first winter you carry them through, they're small, they're young, and they're not eating as much. Then they'll hit their full production stage in the spring, and we can definitely get two full spring, summer, fall seasons out of them and uh, butchers them before that, that final winter. Uh, if you uh, start them in the spring, that's fine, but then about the time they're ready to start laying, you're going to be going into your first winter, and their production isn't going to be very good, and you're feeding a full-grown bird on a full feed ration all winter long before they're going to start laying very well in the coming spring months starting in March. So um, I would say three years from the time your, your chick, chickens are started um, is, is about the, the best that you can hope to do. And I would also suggest that in order to know which chickens are which age, that instead of just using one breed every year, um, that you rotate between three different breeds that are totally different colors so you can keep track of what birds are what age. And if, for instance, you want to have 18 laying hens and you just start six new chicks every spring so that you can always have uh, 18 birds going, and I'd suggest using uh, three different breeds like a black Australorp, a Rhode Island Red, and a Buff Orpington, which he's already using. And that way you'll know who's old and who's young and when it's time to retire them. And anyway, I hope that this uh, helps to answer Danger Brown's question, and thanks for allowing me to come on the show and answer it. Take care. It's one of those times when somebody says, well, thanks for letting me come on the show. And you're like, dude, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, a lot of times I have an expert answer your question. I could do a pretty good job with it, but they just do a better job. I couldn't even begin to really answer that question. I, I have no idea about oh, I do now, uh, as do a lot of you guys who may never even ever need to know. But now you know. Uh, now you have more knowledge. Now you actually can pass that knowledge on. Now you can have a discussion with somebody about it. Isn't that cool? Uh, but I had no idea. I mean, to me, chickens are when, when they look good to eat and I, I want chicken, then they go. That's, that's my philosophy. It's always been my philosophy. I'm not trying to make a living selling chickens or selling eggs. That's not what I do. I just see them as a means towards self-sufficiency. So, uh, Darby, dude, home run answer on that one. Thank you so much. And you can, uh, uh, check out his website at SimpsonFamilyFarm.com. Check him out. He's a great guy and real great member of the community. He's been listening to the show for over a year and a half. And again, for those that are new, I know I got a lot of new people coming in this week, uh, from the Glenn Beck appearance, but, uh, this panel of experts I talked about last week about what it takes to be on this panel, it's not just people that know a lot of stuff. It's people that are actually part of our community, people that understand the people that listen, people that have been here a long time, people that are listeners, not just people that want to get an interview, uh, not just people that want exposure. These are people that give a damn, that care. That, just to be blunt, these are people that give a shit about this audience, and if they don't, they don't get on the council. Darby cares. He's been listening for well over a year, uh, and he's in many ways tried to help contribute to this community. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hey, Jack. It's Dan from the frozen tundra of Minnesota. I uh, just wanted to make a comment. 
I disagreed with your thoughts on economic collapses over the course of, well, the last hundred years, particularly in the 70s, 80s, well, basically since I've been alive, and especially in 2008. So, I was talking with my, one of my coworkers, and I said, you know what, 2012 is going to be a good year economically because it's an election year. The economy has always been up since World War II. In election years, every single year, huh? Well, crap. Except for 2008. Yeah, 2008 was an election year, and we had a really, really crappy year. That's a strong indicator that, yes, you are correct. 2008 was an economic collapse, and that's the first time in 70-plus years. So, huh, that's interesting. I'd like you to draw an analogy historically and what your thoughts are for 2012 because that really made me start, you know, I was giving some economic advice. Yeah, the economy is always up in an election year. Uh, yeah, except for 2008. So I'd like to hear what your thoughts are for 2012. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings with this whole thing, and I'd like to clear them up because I think it helps people get a better historical view of what election cycles do in an economy. First of all, one thing that would change the pattern for 2008, other than the whole world exploded, is that for the first time in a very long time, neither the sitting president nor the existing VP that was part of the administration were running for re-election. So it wouldn't have surprised me, even if we didn't have the collapse we did in 2008, if the market had not performed the way it normally does in an election year. The, what we're, but we're not talking about the economy When I say, because I've said this before, that the market is generally up in an election year. That doesn't mean the whole economy's up. It means the stock market goes up. The economy has been in the dumps for a long time, and in many ways still is, but the market has recovered dramatically percentage-wise from its lows in February of 2009. There's been a lot of upside to the Dow and the S&P that don't necessarily reflect on the entire economy. So when I say the market is up in an election year during an election cycle, it doesn't mean that the economy comes along with it. 1980, perfect example. Uh, the market did remarkably well in 1980 in anticipation of large government spending by a sitting president to attempt to win re-election. And that's what drives the market goes, okay, they're going to roll out the dole and we can capitalize on it initially, take our money and run. This is a trader's mentality that causes this phenomenon. In 2008, it wouldn't have mattered. The, the, the whole thing exploded. And when it did, it wouldn't have mattered how much they, you know, the TARP bailout and all this, it didn't matter. Auto bailouts and AIG bailouts, and it was too bad. And it was because something exploded is the best way to look at it. The, the housing market itself wasn't the problem. It was all of these financial instruments and derivatives that were leveraged against it. And once one fell, it set off this series of basically chain reactions. And it was something that if you were listening in August of 2008, I was telling you, here it comes. Here, this is, this is what's going to happen, and it did. And it wasn't because I was a genius, it's because it was really obvious to anybody that would pull their head out of the sand and look at what was coming. 
So that was a collapse. And it doesn't mean it was a collapse just because it was down during an election year. I don't need you to verify that I was right because of that. It's a collapse because it's the worst thing that's happened in America since the Great Depression. It's not anywhere near as bad as the Great Depression, but nothing else compares. Now, I had talked about previous collapses and multiple collapses. Those were not necessarily financial collapses. What I was talking about is currency defaults. The United States has defaulted on its currency about five times since 1913, with 1913 and the institution of the Federal Reserve being the first collapse. Uh, 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 FDR taking us off the gold standard, another collapse. The silver, uh, leaving the silver standard in 1964, 1965, another currency collapse. Bretton Woods, another collapse. So these were currency collapses that had negative impacts on the economy, but not necessarily complete and total economic collapses. Uh, so you got a lot of things mosh-posh together there. One, it's not an election year. It's an election year with a sitting president or a member of the, the president's administration attempting to win re-election, of course, In 2008, John McCain was the Republican nominee, not part of the presidential uh, presidential administration. So the spending was not anticipated by the traders, uh, and I don't mean traitors, I mean traders, like trading stock. It wasn't anticipated because there was no, George Bush nor Dick Cheney were attempting to buy a re-election, which would all presidents do. So it broke the cycle in many ways. It broke the cycle because there was an implosion on the financial markets, and it broke the cycle because it wasn't a member of the administrating attempting to buy uh, an extension of their job, so to speak. So Jimmy Carter was attempting to buy an extension of his job. In the Reagan 88 election, Reagan with Reagan stepping aside of two terms, and Bush Sr., Bush as part of the administration wanted to buy a continuance. Uh, Bill Clinton buying a continuance. Uh, Al Gore attempting as part of the Clinton administration to buy a continuance. And, and you, you have to agree with that. I'm telling you, that's why the market has historically responded the way it does. And it's not really related to 2008. 2008 would have been down no matter what anybody did because of the implosion of these investment vehicles and highly leveraged assets in the real estate market. And what happened for real was the housing prices were driven too high. And when they came down even just a little bit, it started that chain reaction. And at that point, the only thing that could be done was, and this is what was done with the bailouts and all, was the attempt to create, okay, the plane's going down, let's create a soft landing, not a hard crash. That was it. That was that was the whole maneuver. There was never a plan to prevent the crash at that point. Uh, many people would say that those in the know caused the crash, and I would say there's some credence there. But I'm saying when they were taking actions to try to stop this, they were never thinking, we'll just fix it. They were thinking, let's not let the whole thing completely fall apart. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Mike M. from the forums here. Uh, just want to give you a call and ask, why you haven't done a show yet on peak oil? Uh, I know you mentioned it here or there, um, usually in response to other comments, but... Um, doesn't seem to be a topic that's been um, widely covered yet. I'm curious what your opinions are, and you know whether or not you've studied the topic at any great length, and uh, you know, kind of given your usual range of uh, best and worst case scenarios. Thanks again for all you do, and hope to hear it on the air. 
Well, the main reason I played this question is because it's a teachable moment for the audience that wants answers to, uh, to questions or wants a show on a subject. The odds are with uh, 860 shows knocked out that I've probably covered about anything that we could be interested in in the self-sufficiency, self-reliance uh, and world along with threats to uh, said things. Uh, peak oil is something that I do believe in. I don't believe it in the way the freaked out peakers do that think it's tomorrow morning. Uh, but the reality is that oil is a finite resource and that there's only so much of it. And the discovery of oil is weighed down and it, it does have a bell curve to it. And every single oil field that has ever existed has experienced peak oil. In other words, if you take an oil field and you start extracting oil, it, it slowly comes up to peak, and then it bells off and it drops. And that happens every time. So if it happens in every field, it has to happen globally as well. We've had reports out from the Saudi Arabians that they, from their chief geologist that came out in the WikiLinks thing, where the chief geologist of Saudi Arabian government told our Department of Energy, hey, um, you know how we said we can ramp up production anytime we want to? Well, you guys kind of need to know on the inside that we really can't. So, yeah, there's, there's realities there, but does that mean the oil will disappear tomorrow? No. But the teachable moment is the search box at the survivalpodcast.com is your friend. And with something as broad as peak oil, you might have to page through a few results and go back to old, you know, there's a thing at the bottom. If you see like, you know, 10 results and you don't like any of those, you go older episodes and you might have to do that a couple times, but you'll probably find a show dedicated to anything. And that's how I found the show I knew I did because I couldn't remember what it was called or what episode it was, but it happens to be episode 516. It's called a new look at pink peak oil. And I cover the whole subject for about an hour, and I cover it from a different angle than you typically hear it. When you hear about peak oil, you usually hear about it one or two ways. It's going to happen. It's all happening now. Oh, my God. There's going to be no oil left, and we're all going to die, right? Or some version, not quite that extreme, but some version of it's coming, it's here, it's happening, it's over. There will be no fuel soon. And then the other way that you'll hear it is it's all nonsense and a bunch of eco-freaks trying to tax us for carbon and blah, blah. And that's not how I cover it because I believe that when you polarize to either extreme, you always miss the truth. So I'm not going to go deeper into the subject, but I would say if you want a new look at peak oil, check out episode 516. And at any time you're thinking, Jack should do a show about please consider going to the survivalpodcast.com, going to the search box and typing in your subject there and taking a look at the results because we may have covered it. That doesn't mean I won't do it again. That doesn't mean I don't want your input. I'm not putting the caller down for asking. I'm just saying when you want the content, there is over a thousand hours of content on demand available at the Survival Podcast. All of those podcasts are free. You just have to look through the site and find them. And you can use the tag cloud. You can use the search box. Uh, either way, you'll be able to find a lot of information that you're looking for. Let's take another one of your calls. Hey, Jack. My name is Mark. Uh, first off, great show. You're doing a hell of a job. Keep it up. Um, Long-time listener uh, to the podcast. question is this. What... Uh, criteria would you evaluate a potential financial analyst on? And uh, in reading through the forums, obviously I've, I could kind of get the, the gist that uh, you're not a fan of them, nor am I. Um, frankly, I'm not looking for a fidelity advisor or a, a Big Mac sort of cookie cutter, uh, wool over their eyes, uh, you know, regular old advisor that's talking product. I'm wondering, I mean, what do you look for? Do you even? And if so, I mean, are you looking for uh, people with backgrounds perhaps in Austrian economics or, uh, you know, listing interests in uh, potential metal investments, things of that nature? 
figured I'd bounce that one off you, looking to, uh, you know, some moderate wealth management planning for my father as well as myself, nothing crazy, but enough to, you know, want to seek some advice on. So, uh, again, keep it up. Great job. Uh, thanks, Jack. Uh, I've talked about this before, but the, the only good thing about the collapse of 2008 and 2009 is you have the opportunity now to ask a question that would have been difficult to really get an answer and really judge the person on at any time in history. And my simple question to any prospective financial advisor is what was the average positioning as far as cash and cash equivalents for your clients between 2007 and 2009? And if the answer is anything other than, oh, 25 to 50% or 100% or a very significant portion moved to cash for protection or... Uh, we had people primarily into investments that hedged and were anticipating the market decline. If you don't get one of those two answers, next. That's it. That's the whole screening process. Now, I did a whole show in the beginning about how to interview one, and, and there was all this stuff about, you know, I don't want to talk about my future, and I don't want to hear your nonsense. I just want to know how you can manage, what is your plan, how do you do things, how can you protect it, and, 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 and that was great advice. But today, if the guy's been, and don't get anybody that started yesterday, right? I want somebody, if I want somebody managing my money, I want somebody with some experience. And that means we're going to go at least back four or five years. That means they were in the business back then. And if you were too stupid to protect your clients in 2008 and 2009, you're too stupid to manage my money today. Plain and simple. I mean, that's, that's it. Now, there may be some of those guys out there that are really mad at me right now because they learned their lesson from that and they've changed their investing philosophy. And if they had said something like, I didn't do a real good job then, but I've learned and here's my philosophy now, I might, I might listen. But that's what I would be looking for. Somebody that knew how to protect their client's money from the most telegraphed economic punch that we've ever received. That thing was so freaking in-your-face obvious, here it comes, folks. And all the talking says, there's nothing to worry about. Jim Cramer, Bear Stearns is fine. And ever, anybody that believed that nonsense and just said it's business as usual, the market always performs well over a 10-year period, and you're always better in... No way, no way, no way, no way. And I think it's important that you, even if you have a good advisor, you take an active role, and when your gut tells you to move into a protected state, you tell them, shut up and do it. And if you're going to have an advisor, be prepared to tell them, shut up and do it. But there's your question. How did you protect your client's assets from 2007 through 2009? And if there's not a good answer to that question, if the answer is something like, we rode through it with conservative, consistent investments, and they've recovered nicely, next. Because all that means is they lost a little bit of money between then and now. And that means they didn't get any real gains. Plain and simple. It's that simple. And that's how you need to start really handling a lot of things in your life. You need to cut to the chase. None of this, you know, selling is great, but when it comes down to it, you're making a decision on anything. Nuts and bolts, you know, benefits and, and, and detriments to it. What is it? And with something like that, it's so blooming easy today. It's so easy. You didn't protect your clients in 2008. How can I expect you to protect me from what's coming in the future? And the answer is I can't. Because you believe what you've been trained, which is when a client tells you they want to protect their assets, you tell them, oh, you're so young. Oh, you got plenty of time. You don't even need to worry about next year. This money's for when you're 75. You're 45. Don't even worry about it. Loser talk from loser financial advisors that you don't need to be spending your time with. Ask them how they protected those assets.
And that'll tell you whether the kind of person you want to do business with. With that, I've got things wrapped up for the day. I had a great time doing today's show. I'm sorry that there wasn't a show yesterday. Uh, opportunities to do something like GBTV don't come around every day. I had to kind of make a on-the-spot decision. Eight o'clock in the morning, got the phone call, came in, put up a show for the day, and ran out the door and uh, and got down there for that. Uh, actually, you know what, guys? I would have even had a show for you yesterday, uh, except we had a, a scheduling conflict with one of our guests. So uh, had that not happened, we still would have had one. Once in a while, there's not going to be a show. When there isn't a show, uh, all you got to do, again, like I said earlier, today, use that search box. What do you want to know about? What do you want to hear about? Man, I've been pouring this stuff out for almost four years now. I promise you, whatever you're looking to learn about, we've covered it. We'll cover it again. We'll cover it deeper. And we'll keep coming up with great topics. Remember, I am looking to do The Revolution Is You 2.0 for, uh, for episode uh, 1000. Send me your photos of what you're doing, how you're being more self-sufficient, independent, self-reliant. Uh, lots of pictures with those kids. Make sure you check out the video if you've never seen it. If you have seen it, today would be a good day to watch it again. I'll have a link in today's show notes. And remember to start getting your, your mind around what you're going to do for the call-in show for episode 1000, what you're going to talk about, how your life changed. Don't call in yet to the Think Line. I'm going to set up a separate 800 number just for that because it'll make doing that show a lot easier for us. I'll be getting that number out to you probably next week or the week thereafter. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.